0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, May 25th. As more Canadians get the shot, questions remain on what summer might look like. Will we be able to travel to other provinces, for example, or go across the border? We discuss the topic with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block.
1: Monday was Tax Freedom Day, a day where statistically an average Canadian family gets to keep the money it's making rather than paying it in taxes. We speak with Jake Fuss, Senior Economist from the Fraser Institute, on the significance of the day and why he thinks the date will be much later in the coming years.
0: It's a good news, bad news scenario when it comes to cruise vacations. We catch up with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, on when the cruise lines will be back up and running, but also how the new schedule will see major vacation companies skipping over a popular Canadian port of call.
1: And finally, it is mental health month, so we're going to look at the impact that social media has on the mental health of women in particular and what women can do to curate their Facebook feeds and their Instagram posts to try and safeguard themselves. It is 6.09 and that means on a Tuesday morning, we have the pleasure of checking in with our friend Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you guys? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. How was your weekend? Hopefully a little less wet and moist and soggy than ours yeah
2: i i don't want to lord it over you so i'll just say we were very lucky here to have a beautiful long
1: weekend well i'm glad to hear it that's fantastic i know you had a busy show uh do you want to tell us uh, what went on you know we had a little conversation uh, about you know vaccines and and maybe also when we'll start seeing some of the provincial barriers being opened up and we'll be, be able to do a little traveling within our own country again
2: yeah and you know the federal government always says when you talk about interprovincial travel that it's really it's not up to them it's up to the individual provinces and as you know different provinces have um different sort of regulations on coming in and out some require a quarantine some don't um but it's interesting because if you looked at the flights uh into Canada and within Canada during the sort of end of April to mid-May time period, there's exponentially more COVID cases moving or flights with COVID cases moving on them inside Canada than coming into Canada. Uh, this is sort of an interesting thing to see. Some days I counted over a dozen domestic flights that had COVID cases. Um, And during that same period, you were talking anywhere between one and kind of four uh, international flights coming in. So it raises some interesting questions, but constitutionally, Very hard to stop people from traveling interprovincially, and a lot of provinces simply don't want to put that two-week quarantine into place because there's a significant economic impact when you do that. Um, So it's sort of an interesting little realization, and that's one of the things that uh, we were thinking about on the show, and we were also thinking about Canadians crossing into the United States to get their shot. I know some Albertans were doing that um, with a First Nation Indigenous community that was offering shots, very generously to Canadians who wanted to come across the border. But it's something the federal government has been trying to discourage. And we kind of asked them, why? If you can cross directly into the you know, other side of the border, and get a shot that it might take them weeks otherwise to get here. Uh, and essentially, Dominic LeBlanc, the minister we had on the show, said that they still believe it can pose a threat. Any kind of international travel, they still want to send that message, but they are willing to consider possibilities if there are specific border communities offering this initiative. Uh, so interesting to see that that was a little bit of a change in tone uh, from the harder line the government was taking earlier in the week on any Canadian crossing
0: the border. Yeah, we got it. We got notice uh, over the weekend that Mm -hmm. the Blackfeet tribe based out of, you know, Montana saying that they have to put the brakes on it because of bureaucracy on both sides of the border. And Sue had mentioned that they don't even get out of their cars. So to me, it's it's, ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever. But as far as the border itself, we knew that it's been extended to June 21st, the federal border between the U.S. and Canada. Are you hearing anything else as to what we might see come June 21st, another extension? Or could we see things (coughs) reopening?
2: We just don't know at this point. And um, it's one of the questions that we asked Minister LeBlanc on the show was, you know, when could we see reopening? All they're saying is that it's connected to vaccination rates. Um, so they want to see a higher vaccination rate on both sides of the border. Now, that kind of gets interesting and tricky because, well, Canadians seem to be very keen to get the vaccine. Um, Americans seem to be less so. Their, their vaccination rate is dropping off and it's not due to lack of support. So we haven't seen any kind of an actual benchmark released by the government yet. And I suspect that they might be reluctant to do that because it could tie their hands at some point uh, with reopening the border. But there's more and more pressure coming from the United States, especially from uh, northern governors saying we need to reopen the border. We need to get going. Um, But at this point, the government is saying they still want to wait longer. We just don't really know how much longer.
1: Mercedes, what's the latest in Manitoba? I know they're certainly seeing just now uh, here in Alberta. We're kind of coming out the other end of our third wave, but Manitoba just moving into theirs, and things are looking pretty dire in that province.
2: Yeah, certainly um, very, very serious. They're asking for help from the federal government, and we are learning that the federal government is going to be sending some things like uh, individuals like lab workers and uh, potentially medical staff to try to help out um, because, essentially, they're just overwhelmed. And we had the same thing happen here in Ontario. Uh, in fact, the military had to come in in Ontario to some areas. And uh, we're kind of operating little mini field hospitals outside certain hospitals where the ICU were simply becoming overwhelmed by COVID cases. Um, So we had Mayor Brian Bowman on the show. He's the mayor of Winnipeg, and he's none too happy with the provincial government. He thinks that they did not keep restrictions tight enough for long enough and that essentially a lot of this was avoidable. So certainly some tension happening out there in Manitoba uh, between the municipal and the provincial governments on what those restrictions should look like um, and uh, some some sort of internal finger-pointing starting to happen there.
0: You know, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you of uh, the latest in the sexual misconduct mm. investigation into uh, Canadian military and uh, the higher ranks. Uh, anything new over the past week?
2: Yeah. So the Defence Committee continues to sit and um, the opposition want to call more witnesses, including Zita Astrovask. Um, who was the chief of staff to the defence minister at the time that Gary Walborn tried to bring this allegation forward. Uh, They say they want clarity from her on what exactly she said to who, when. Um, She's the one person they sort of haven't heard from. So your listeners know... It's highly, highly, highly unusual for a government to ever allow political staff to testify. Um, so the you know the same thing happened with the conservatives in, in various scandals that they had, but um, they're saying they want to hear from Astrobas because they want to hear from her specifically what she actually did, and that's the only way to find that out. Uh, the liberals basically walked out of the committee meeting on Friday, essentially freezing it while this was being debated. So we don't really know what going to happen there. We'll be watching the committee this week to see whether um, it's shut down and there's no more testimony or whether they continue to hear from witnesses.
1: So does it feel like, you know, there's lots of complaints coming from everybody but the Liberals. Well, the Liberals say they're trying to be open and honest and, and get to the bottom of this, but it does it just doesn't really feel like that, does it?
2: Well, you know, it feels like there's, there's kind of um, the same thing being said over and over and over again, which is that they do not tolerate harassment in the workplace. Well, obviously not. No modern employer does. Um, But there's sort of a feeling that they They didn't take a lot of responsibility for the behaviors of people, how they reacted um, to what happened with John Vance. They just kept kind of blaming the bureaucrats. They have changed their tune on that a little bit, um, but it just seems to be this continuing unfolding scandal for them about when people knew what and and what they actually did about it. And we still don't have a lot of transparency on what exactly happened there, despite the promises to to have that. Um, And we still really don't have a lot of transparency on things like why they didn't implement, um, you know, recommendations that were made in 2015, why they're not doing that immediately now, um, and more so even, you know, what people actually knew because the accounts don't all line up exactly, which isn't surprising. Uh, it's, you know, over two years ago, but, you know, who knew what when, and it's still really unclear because they won't spell it out as to whether or not they knew this was uh, an an allegation that was sexual in nature, which the ombudsman says they did, that he told them that. Uh, we heard from a senior PMO official he believed that, but we still haven't really heard that um, come out of the mouth of the Prime Minister's chief of staff, who testified, uh, or from the Prime Minister himself.
0: Certainly more to come uh, when it comes to this topic, and we'll uh, I'll be checking with you weekly to continue your coverage. Thanks, Mercedes. Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. 6.43 mornings with Sue and Andy. It comes once a year and is celebrated by Canadians across the country. Well, sort of. Tax Freedom Day was yesterday. It marks the day an average family gets to keep the money it's making rather than paying it in taxes. The later the date, the more we've been paying in taxes. We're joined now by Jake Fuss, senior economist at the Fraser Institute and the author of the Tax Freedom Report. Good morning to you, Jake.
3: Good morning, thanks very much for having me on.
0: Thanks for being here. So, Jake, what does the report indicate this year?
3: Yeah, well, every year we calculate tax freedom day to provide information about the total tax bill faced by average Canadian families. So tax freedom day is essentially the day in the year when the average Canadian family has earned enough money to pay the taxes imposed by all three levels of government as an upfront cost. Um so in 2021, we estimate tax freedom day falls on May 24th, which was yesterday, Um, And this is about a week later than what we saw last year in 2020 um, during the height of the pandemic.
1: So, Jake, at this point from today forward, the money we make is ours, correct, technically?
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what this tries to do, you know, it's difficult for Canadians to calculate their total tax bill. Um, So Tax Freedom Day is the day in the year, like I said, when the average Canadian family has earned enough money to pay all the taxes, Um, You know, in Canada, we pay many different types of taxes. So some of these taxes are are more visible, um, but some of them are are less visible, which adds to confusion about how much we actually pay. Um, So not only do we pay income taxes, we also pay property taxes, payroll taxes, health taxes, sales taxes, um, you know, taxes on gasoline, um, sin taxes, and the list goes on. Um, So Tax Freedom Day really aims to simplify this calculation process for Canadians.
0: Jake, it's often touted that Albertans pay some of the lowest taxes in the country. Does your report back that up?
3: Yeah, so actually the interesting thing in this year's um, Tax Freedom Day results is that Alberta no longer has the earliest Tax Freedom Day among the provinces. Um, A lot of this is due to the province having a smaller change in its tax bill in 2020 than other provinces. Um, So we saw that other provinces saw much larger reductions in their tax bills during the height of the pandemic. Um, and taxes consumed a smaller proportion of their family income relative to Alberta's in 2020, and this is uh, kind of carried forward to this year. Um, and Alberta's tax freedom day now falls a week later than it did last year. Um, last year was May 15th, but uh, this year we're actually seeing it as May 22nd in the in the province of Alberta.
1: Why is that a week later then? What what sort of the, the impetus behind that?
3: Yeah, a lot of it um, doesn't necessarily have to do with you know tax rate changes or anything like that. A lot of it is um, due to the change in the tax bill. Um, You know, Alberta did have um, significant reductions in tax revenues last year, but at the same time, um, they had much smaller um, effect on income than other provinces. Um, So uh, Alberta's income was hit quite hard um, relative to other provinces, um, you know, with with commodity prices being where they were in 2020. Um, So this did have quite a big effect on Alberta. Um, So that's the main reason why we saw Alberta no longer having the earliest tax freedom day among the provinces. And there were also, um, you know, big changes in other provinces, too, um, that saw their tax revenues drop quite a bit as well.
0: Jake, we know that uh, governments have been busy, all levels of government, trying to prop up those folks who've had a a tough go. And I'm looking at a lot of them at, uh, you know, the businesses that have needed help over the past 14 months. What does this mean moving ahead in years to come when it comes to tax freedom day for Canadians? I guess it would be pie in the sky to think we'll see it any any earlier than the twenty fourth of May anytime soon.
3: Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, although you know, emergency spending the, to deal with the fallout from the COVID pandemic was certainly necessary. Um, you know, well, one thing that we're now tracking, you know, we we are running significant deficits at both the federal and provincial level in Canada. Um, so those deficits, we estimate, will be about two hundred and thirty four billion dollars this year, um, and we can really consider those as deferred taxes pay for today's spending. Um, So, you know, if Canadian governments had to raise taxes to balance their budgets instead of financing spending with deficits, uh, we would see Tax Freedom Day actually arrive 44 days later on July 7th this year. Um, So the key takeaway here is that, you know, these deficits, while they were certainly necessary, are money that the younger generation will have to pay back, um, and they will likely have to do so through higher taxes in the future. Um, So that's just something that we'll have to, you know, consider for average Canadian families moving forward. Tax Freedom Day will likely fall in June or or July in the future um, if, if the tax bill continues to rise for Canadian families.
1: Wow, that's shocking. Thank you so much for the update, Jake. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. That is Jake Foss, Senior Economist with the Fraser Institute. 7.50 7.50 on a Tuesday morning. We check in now with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, to talk about cruising. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. We know Alaska cruising set to return this summer, but no mm-hmm. stops in BC. So really, it's kind of a good news, bad news story. What do we know about it?
4: Well, here's the thing. I mean, it's a good news story in the sense that cruising is getting up and running. It's a bad news story for BC tourism because they rely on that uh, particular business for uh, nearly $3 billion a year.
3: Mm.
4: Yeah, so so it's going to hit those areas hard. Uh, I also think just looking at the itinerary, it's, a, it's very... Um, strange because they had to pass a special act, uh, both houses, the Alaska Tourism Recovery Act in the US, because generally they always have to stop at a foreign port when they depart a U.S. port. And there's no foreign ports unless this. It's all American mm. ports. And it's only going to be for this year. Um, so, so it's quite interesting. But when you look at the itinerary, they're missing out the inside passage completely. And they come out of Seattle via Puget Sound and then skirt the outside, the western side of Vancouver Island. And I think people on those cruise ships will be missing some spectacular yeah. scenery. Yeah.
0: Inter- yeah. Interesting on our side of the border and interesting to see if, uh, you know, we can get those dollars back, almost $3 billion. That's a uh, lot. That is, wow. That's a huge that's money. Huge. Let's talk that's- a little further about the cruise lines and any processes they have in place to ensure people have had vaccines before they're getting on board. What are they saying? Mm-hmm.
4: Yes, well, on these uh, cruises and other cruises that we're looking at with them, you've got to have both uh, shots. Um, within two weeks of boarding. So you have to have a two-week gap. And then they say that they require proof. Now, they want government proof, not just, you know, a piece of paper. And here comes the second thing about vaccination passports or some kind of digital or universal proof that you've had the vaccination because it's going to become more and more important as travel opens up. And as yet, we're still talking about maybe using the ArriveCan app or um, IATA, the International Association, wants a different kind of thing that's universally accepted. So everything's kind of up in the air. It makes it really, really difficult.
1: Leslie, let's talk about cruising just quickly, because I know you, we've had this discussion with you, but, uh, you know, the cruise ships were a hot mess right at the beginning of this pandemic. They were. But, so what is it that they've done to make it safe for us once again to return to cruising? Oh, they have been through hours and hours of
4: meetings with uh, representatives from the World Health Organization, CDC. They have numerous protocols in place. They are vaccinating their staff and crew in most cases. They've got enhanced protocols for ventilation systems. So did they change the ventilation systems on board then? Some of them they did. Some of them they did. So um, they've learned a lot. You know, when you think it's over a year ago that the Diamond Princess got stuck, And nobody really knew how to handle the crisis. Now when they um, organize their itineraries, they have agreements in those ports of call that if they pick up a passenger who's positive, they have the ability to disembark Mm. that passenger at that port and get them off the ship and out of the country. So there's been a lot of planning going on there, and uh, their protocols are extreme.
0: Uh, Very good, and thanks for keeping us on top of the situation, (laughs) Leslie.
4: Okay. Keep well, guys, and stay safe.
0: That is Leslie Cater, the Travel Lady. You can find her at thetravellady.ca. 8.12 on Mornings with Sue and Andy. Social media plays a big role in modern life. One recent survey out of the U.K. finds that Adults spend 102 minutes daily on social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. However, in academic and popular discourse, social media use is understood to have negative consequences for body image and self-esteem, particularly among women. Hester Hawken boyers is a PhD student rather, in the Department of Sociology at the University of Durham and one of the researchers behind the survey on the influence of social media on women's health. Good morning to you, Hester.
5: Hi, good morning.
0: Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, Can you give us some examples of how social media can be problematic for women's mental health?
5: Yeah, so I think it's worth starting by saying that, you know, social media does have a lot of positive qualities. So, you know, it can help us connect with people. You can explore your interests. um, It can also be quite a creative space. Um, But there are also a lot of kind of negative sides to social media that can make our time online harmful for our well-being. Um, So you might have heard social media described sometimes as kind of a highlight reel, um, which means often you're kind of seeing the best parts of Mm -hmm. people's days. um, You're also seeing the most people's bodies in the most flattering light. Um, and that can really lead to, to social comparison with what you're seeing online. Um, and when your, your own lives and your own bodies potentially don't match up to what you're seeing online, um, that can really need to lead to a negative body image and caught
1: up self-esteem, um, to- which is particularly common among women and girls. Yeah, truly. I was going to ask, mm-hmm. you know, what can women do? But what can oh, I think even more importantly, what can women do for our daughters and the young people in our world? Yeah, it's a really good question
5: and a really important question, I think. Um, so, some of my research explored this link uh, between uh, women's mental health and social media use. Um, and what I wanted to do was to really, um, yeah, dig into this idea that social media has this negative effect. Because, um, in spite of these negative impacts, you know, we also know that women and girls still use social media in, in huge numbers. Um, so this kind of really led me to the question, well, you know, do women just kind of accept these negative effects that come with using social media or do they, in fact, kind of develop strategies that can help them navigate these spaces and almost kind of protect their mental health? Um, so some of my research has looked into how women can kind of uh, yeah, curate their social media feeds um, essentially in order to protect their mental health.
0: I think that's fantastic that it, uh, it, it kind of takes the approach that, you know, that social media is here to stay. Mm-hmm. We can't get rid of it. And people want to be in the know and they want to socialize and use these feeds for different things and, and for the positive. So when you say curate, what sorts of things mm-hmm. can you imagine would be on a woman's timeline on, on Facebook, for example, that, you know, would be more positive versus have some negative effects? Uh, maybe give us some example of some of these posts that people might uh, be curating for their own uh, timelines.
5: Yeah I think it's important to say it's very individual you know what affects one person negatively might not affect the other person so negatively. Um, We do know that as I said there's a lot of kind of uh, idealist idealized bodies on social media and people edit their uh, their photos quite a lot which can um, create these kind of expectations um, that, that people possibly um, aren't able to kind of live up to in their own lives um, and, I, and I think it's also important to say that um, it requires some kind of self-knowledge um, to engage in these strategies of curation so the women kind of need to have a bit of knowledge of their own triggers um, and that really comes about through um, yeah self-reflection and always kind of really checking in with yourself on kind of what you're seeing online and how it might be affecting
1: you. Most definitely here to say stay, as Andy said. Uh, we just have to learn to live with it and perhaps understand it a little better. Thanks so much for joining us and appreciate your research. Thank you, Hester. Thanks very much for having me. That is Hester Hawken-Boyers, PhD student at the University of Durham. And I think, you know, you're right. There's no way we're going to get away from it. It's here to stay in 102 minutes daily. I think that's a very low number, especially for our young people. And yeah. and I, I think we just need to remind girls, particularly but boys and girls, it's not always reality, right? Well, it is we no, know that.
0: It's no different than a store or a restaurant that you like or... You know, don't have a real thing for maybe maybe not your cup of tea. You don't have to go into those stores. You don't mm-hmm. have to go into and spend money at certain restaurants. It's
1: always the best of.
0: Oh, absolutely, it's not so real life with with social media. You don't have to follow everybody. You don't have to, you know, see these images. And I've noticed particularly during this time of the pandemic, unfollowing and you know, and many times unfriending people. Oh, It feels good. Who, doesn't yeah. It? So I mean, if Oof. if if it causes you any stress. What? Yeah, I think you have to, as Hester had mentioned, it's, it's super personalized. What are you there for? Mm-hmm. What do you want to see? And uh, what do you not want to and see? And if it
1: doesn't make you feel good, delete that person in or control. that follow. Yeah, for
0: sure.